Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. I appreciate the music this morning, amen. Um, Music that speaks to the truth of God's Word reminds us who we are in Christ. Reminds us that the Holy Spirit is actively working in us, using His Word to continually sanctify us. As your bulletin says, and I encourage you to take out your bulletin insert, we're going to be going over a topic this morning that is one that has been on my heart for a very long time. You'll notice that the title of today's sermon is, He Created Them Male and Female, and that it's a Christian worldview of this gender identity movement that is so prevalent in our society today. You'll also notice, too, that that insert is pretty much blank. That is intentional. I do have many points that I want you to write down. But ultimately, it is my prayer that you take notes. And there's going to be a lot of them. I had to sit down a couple of times with Steph to actually go over all the different slides that I have. But I encourage you to use the front and the back of that piece of paper and take notes. Because as I stand here this morning, I wanted to make sure that I gave you all a little bit of color about this topic and what we're going to be studying through and why it is so prevalent in my heart. Many of you guys that know me know that I do not like to necessarily do a topical subject whenever I'm preaching. I would much rather just take a single verse or a passage, or even take a book, ultimately, and just be able to study through it verse by verse. Be able to see it the way that God has given it to us within each individual book, these 66 books, and of course be able to see how cohesive the whole breadth of Scripture is at the same time. So bear with me if this is a little bit off. As far as if I have an extra long pause, that just means that I got lost in my notes because I'm not used to doing this, right? But like I said, I wanted to give a little bit of color to this. I do recognize that uh, a topical study like this is beneficial to our souls. Especially in light of the world that we live in, it is important for us to actually take the situations and the scenarios that are happening with us and to actually go to Scripture in order to find answers to those problems, right? We all know that this is what a Christian worldview is. 
But such, um, so when I was actually sitting down and I'm like, well, how, what is a Christian worldview? I wanted to make sure that I clearly defined it and we can clearly see and we're in agreement what it is. So what we do is, is we are confronted with a question. So I will present you guys with a question. Are we really saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? I'm glad that I heard yeses. Many of us are very quick to say yes, amen. We know this, right? This is something that is ingrained in us. We know this because we are saved through faith, by grace, in Christ, right? But do you know where to go if somebody has a question and wants you to prove it in God's Word? My prayer is that you do. But ultimately what we do is we go to that verse that speaks directly to the point, right? For this example, what I do is I go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 9, which clearly state, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is what we call a proof text, is it not? The question is, are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Absolutely. It says right there that you are saved by grace, through faith, so that you cannot boast in your own salvation. This whole passage in Ephesians talks about how all of this is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, right? This is how we start to build a Christian worldview is we take a question or we take a situation and we go to Scripture and we let Scripture speak. Now, why is it important that I clarify this? You see, when we're actually coming up against a question like we have this morning or a subject like we have this morning, it is important and imperative that we actually approach Scripture rightly. The way we need to approach Scripture is, well, I, not that I heard some pastor say this. Well, Casey told me on Sunday, or Bear said last Sunday, right? We also don't approach Scripture in the sense of, well, I already know the answer to this, so I'm going to go make sure God's Word confirms it. You'll see today, this morning, that this is a lot of what happens within this movement and how people try to defend and say that Christians should support this movement. Now, I know that this is a long introduction, and I hope that you are not sitting on the edge of your seat wondering what I'm going to say about this. So I want to get the answer to the question out front to you. So you can relax a little bit. Through careful study of God's Word, I have come to find, which is no surprise to hopefully all of you, 
that this movement is nothing more than sin and is an abomination to God. It is, I do not say this lightly. Simply put, this movement is nothing less than a spiritual attack by Satan and should be counted as sin. Once again, this is after careful study of God's word. And it is not Casey says, but it is that God says. I was a little bit nervous bringing up this subject this morning. And I even told Bear this past Wednesday, I said, well, we'll see if you have a congregation to come back to next Sunday. <laughs> but I stand here a man of God, not ashamed to proclaim the truth of his word. Even to the point where I have been cautioned this past week by several people that I work with that say that if my current employer hears or sees what I said today, there's a good chance that I'm going to get fired. Absolutely. And yet I stand before you this morning without wavering conviction. Because I know and I understand what God's Word says. And I know and am resolved to know what Matthew 10, 26 through 28 says, where it says, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see the reason that I can stand here not worrying about what tomorrow is going to bring is because I fear and I serve God, not man. So let's go to him in prayer. God, I do pray this morning that you would be with me. God, that you would speak through me, that you would convey your word, that you would speak it to the hearts of all those that are here today. God, help us to teach such a subject as we have before us and just help us to understand rightly how you view it. God, not be blinded by emotions in our own lives, but to take a logical look at your word. And Father, help us to have unity in heart and mind and soul this morning. God, help us to be resolved in knowing that you have called us to stand for your truth. God, we do pray all of this this morning in your son's most heavenly name. Amen. So, this is a longer introduction, and I'm still not done with it. But I do ask you all to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. You see, because when we're actually handling a subject like this, and we start to see God's character, 
called into question, one of the best things that we can possibly do is start at the beginning. Don't be confused by that statement, by the way. God's character is being called into question. To say that someone is born a specific sex, and then to say that that sex is wrong, is to truly call into the character of our God and our Creator. That He made a mistake. This is not our God. You see, it's important that you recognize within Genesis 1 that there are tons of theological truths here. I started out in saying that we cannot just go to God's Word and think that we already know the answer, and so we just kind of skim over it or pick those verses out that we think supports our, our answer. This is what I want to caution you against even in Genesis chapter 1 when we start reading. Do not think that, oh yeah, Genesis chapter 1, I know this, I've read this a thousand times. It's about creation. Okay, let's move on next. But I want you to see that this is so much more than creation. Yes, it is God telling us exactly how he spoke the world into existence. But there is so much more here. For example, I want you to notice that within Genesis chapter 1, God establishes his authority and his reign over all things. I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 1 that God, because of this authority, sets all things, creates all things, and sets all things in motion according to his will so that they will function perfectly. Don't just approach Genesis chapter 1 and say that it is the creation story and move on. Because within this passage, we have the character of God being put on display from the very beginning. So let's read together Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let, uh, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse uh, from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land and the gathering of the waters he, uh, land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, uh, vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, planting uh, plants yielding seed after their kind, and the trees bearing fruit with seed in their uh, in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let the, there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give them or to give light on the earth, and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with, swar- uh, with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the uh, waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which uh, has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. I hope that you see within this chapter not just that God created things, but that because He is the creator of all things, that He has set all things in motion. This is established with the first four words within this verse, in the beginning God. Within these words, God establishes His lordship over all things. He shows it by making it clear to us that He spoke all things into existence and then He also spoke how it was to function. This helps us to understand that if He, meaning God, has ultimate authority over all creation, that means He has the final say in how it is to function. 
We can see this in God, in how God has ordered things with the creation event. Everything has its place. The stars, the sun, the moon, the plants that yield seed and the, and the trees that bear fruit. How he separated the waters from uh, the waters above from the waters below, how he made the birds in the sky and creatures in the sea on the earth and blessed them and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, how he created us in his image and set us apart from the rest of creation. You see, I don't have this in my notes, but I want to make sure that I make something clear. It just drives me crazy. Some of the things that are happening that are coming out of this movement to include people that think that they can act like animals and identify, quote unquote, as an animal. Why would you do this? God has set everything in place and he has placed us to have dominion over all things. And yet people think that what they are going to do for the sake of attention or whatever else it is, that they are going to degrade the creation that God has made. And they are going to place themselves lower than what God, the position that God has given them. It baffles me. He has given us dominion over all the earth. And set us apart. He has made us a living soul according to Genesis chapter 2. Nothing else in creation has this. There is a reason that I read Psalm 139. And it's because I want you to see that this is not just how God created Adam and Eve. But, but Psalm 139 states that God even formed you in your mother's womb. That he created you male, and fe male or female. There's a phrase that I keep hearing that keeps coming out of this movement, and that is, well, yeah, that's the, ge that's the identi gender identity that I was assigned at birth. Baffles me. It's an amazing statement. That the doctor somehow has the authority to declare what God has already established. No. Your sex is determined by God and God alone. It is not a choice. This is the truth that all of us uh, here, or listening online, or listening in the future, need to be unified in. There's a reason that I say that we need to be unified in this. And there's a reason that I bring all of this up. There was a Christian poll that was put out in the year 2020. And this poll had uh, one of the questions on it, and I want to give you these statistics. The question was, do you think the evangelical church should be more accepting of the gender identity movement? 19% of evangelicals strongly agreed. 
What's even more staggering is that this exact same question was asked in a similar poll by the same people this year. And it was the same question, except this time 37% of evangelicals strongly agree. That needle is moving in the wrong direction, church. All of this is a reflection of the church and individual Christians not having a correct world, Christian worldview. The church today is content to be known for their acceptance and tolerance of sin for the sake of making somebody feel comfortable rather than confronting sin and calling it or and calling for repentance of the unregenerate heart which risks offending some individuals along with my research and the statistics that I found I also found a list of five biblical reasons quote unquote that is floating around of why Christians should support this movement You see, it's so important for us to slow down and take a look at this and make sure that we get this correct because now we have evangelical churches submitting, saying that God has ordained this. So I give you these five points, and these five points I want to confront because what we are actually doing is we are not just combating the world, but rather... We are fighting a battle that is on two fronts. One within the church and one within the world. So Steph, I'm going to have you put up these five points. And these five points are going to be somewhat shocking to you. Because I know they shocked me. Point one, the Bible should not be read literally or there can uh, be different interpretations of the text. Point two, because God changed the names of people, it is okay for people to change their names to a new identity. Three, God's uh, prohibition against wearing clothing of a different sex in Deuteronomy 22.5 is irrelevant because the Torah no longer applies. Number four, because Paul says that there is neither male nor female in Galatians 3.28, fixed genders no longer exist. And number five, the Bible describes a binary, a non-binary gender called eunuchs. See, we laugh at some of these. And I was telling Stacy that when I was preparing for this message, I felt like that I was going through all the stages of grieving. Because at first, when you see this, you're confused and it just doesn't make any sense, right? And then all of a sudden, you start, it starts to sink in what they're saying is, and then all of a sudden, we start to get angry. And then we start to wonder and actually think about the people that believe this, and it makes us sad. But ultimately, we do end up, like I said, resolved knowing that God has called this sin and that He will deal with the consequences. So what I want to do is I want to make sure that we go through this one by one and we refute these statements that are being made that evangelicals should not be saying such things. 
But I also want to remind you before we start tackling down through these that this is not a new tactic. That, in, uh, that this is something that the devil has been doing since the beginning of time. We can see this in Genesis chapter 3, right? We can also see that Satan doing the same thing to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. But uh, let us be like Jesus and not like Adam. And let's confront error with truth. So step, or so point one, and I'm going to try to run through these. We might run a little bit long. We'll see how it goes. Step one, or point one, the Bible should not be read literally, or there can be different interpretations of the text. First, I would like to address the second half of this. There is not more than one interpretation of a text. There is only one interpretation. How do we know this? Because of verses like 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That means that it comes from God. That means that it reflects the character of the one that it comes from. This is why we have passages like Psalm 119, 140 that says, Your word is pure, therefore your servant loves it. Or even Psalm 119, 89 that says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I love that verse 89. Because in the word is, is everything that we need to know. That means that it is a sign of permanence. It is established. It will not be changed. It will not be moved. So I know that many of us, when we've actually come to disagreements within Scripture and what a text says... What's one of the things that I hear? Well, that's just what this verse means to me, right? This is the danger and why we can see within those polls that I just quoted before, the danger of us not having a correct worldview according to God's word. You see, here at Magic Valley Bible Church, we believe in a literal interpretation of God's word. And I started to think about, well, if there, I, I, I have been, I have taken a literal interpretation of God's word for so long that I started thinking, well, what other interpretation could there be? Because what we do is we see things like math, or verses like Matthew 5, 44, that say, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what do you think that we need to do? We need to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us, right? Pretty simple. God has given us his word in plain, direct language. But you see, one of the things that um, literal uh, people that translate the Bible literally, we get a little bit of flack over is then people say, well, what do you do with parables? Well, we know that Jesus uses worldly examples in order to convey a spiritual meaning. 
It's not hard. So we can take parables like the Good Samaritan, for example. And we know this parable, right? There was a question asked of Jesus after he says the uh, two greatest commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And then a lawyer, a Sadducee, stands up and he says, but Lord, who is our neighbor, right? And then we know that Jesus launches off into this parable and he actually says, well, you're, uh, and he tells the parable of a man walking along a road that gets beaten up and robbed and that the priest and the Levi walk by and they don't do anything. And then the Samaritan comes and he helps, right? We all know this story from Sunday school class when we were kids. And we also know the answer to this story is to get at the heart of the question, because Jesus says at the end of that parable, he asked this Sadducee again, so which one of these loved his neighbor? And he says the third one, which was the Samaritan. He says, yes, go and do likewise, right? But there's another view, and people say that you can look at things like this in an allegorical way. So I have a quote for you, and it's a little bit longer quote. And I typically, I go to Augustine, and I read his stuff, and I'm like, yeah, he's spot on. But for whatever reason, within this passage, within the same parable, Augustine chose to interpret it in an allegorical way. So let me read this for you. It says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, speaking of this parable, Adam himself is meant. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace for whose uh, blessedness Adam fell. Jericho mean, uh, means the moon and signifies our mortality because it is born, waxes, and wanes, and dies. Thieves are the devil and his angels who stripped him namely of his immortality and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead because in so far as a man can understand and God know he lives, but in so far as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. Therefore, he, uh, he therefore is called half dead. The priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signify the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could profit nothing for salvation. Samaritan means guardian, and therefore the Lord himself is signified by this name. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine, the exhortation to work with fervent spirit. The beast is the flesh in which he deigned, which means that it is beneath him, to come to us. The being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church where travelers return to their healthy or heavenly country and refreshed uh, after pilgrimage. The morrow is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two pence are either the two precepts of the love of the promise of this life and of what is to come. I don't know about you guys, but I didn't get any of that from that parable. <laughs> right? And I think it's interesting where he continues on and on and on, but I stop there because I think it's interesting within that last line where he isn't sure what the two uh, denarii actually represent. So he says, well, it could be this or it could be that. Well, which is it? Because there's one proper interpretation, right? 
You see, this is the danger of what the church does and the danger of what Christians do when they actually take God's word and they try to read deeper into it or they try to insert themselves into it. In context, Jesus plainly shows us an example of what it looks like to love our neighbors and ourselves, which includes even showing this love to our enemies. God plainly tells us what he wants to say. End of story. Point two, because God changed the name of people, in, uh, it is okay for people to change their names to a new identity. This is one that I laugh at. But I will give credit where credit is due. Did God change names? Absolutely. Did people change names? Absolutely. Most notably in Daniel 1, 6 through 7, where it says, Now among them the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, uh, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. It's true, right? God changed names. People changed names in the Bible. So, what do we do with this? Well, first off, we actually look at the biblical view of why names were changed. But before I even get there, I do find this point interesting, and there is a reason that I go to Daniel to read this point to you. You see, within Daniel, the Babylonians actually used to do this for a specific reason, and it's the same reason that we can see it within this culture today. The Babylonians used to change the names of their captors to the names of local gods, so that way they would brainwash them and convert them quickly in order to serve their gods and not their own. Does this sound familiar within this context? You see, these are not new tactics, but they are the same. So, none of this, of course, refutes that God, for one, yes, he did change names, but for two, he never changed their sex. Abram did not become Sarah. Right? But I find it very interesting that they try to use this as an example of how we should support this transgender movement. One of my favorite passages is in Genesis 17, where God changes Abram's name to Abraham. But why did God do this? Well, it's significant because he changed his name in Genesis 17:5, where he says, No longer shall you be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So why did God change Abram's name to Abraham? Well, because Abraham means father of many nations, which ultimately reflected his new relationship with God and his new position within the kingdom of God. God had a plan for him, so he changed his name to reflect that plan. 
This is nothing, I'm sure, that shocks any of you, but something that we need to make sure that we have solidified in our heads. So, no, in this case, just as the first uh, scripture does not support the change of the name in order to change their sex. You are who God has created you to be. Point three, God's prohibition against wearing clothing of a different sex is irrelevant because the Torah no longer applies. This is where I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22.5. Because it's important that you guys see with this with your own eyes. Of course, we know that this is within the law. These are actually the ordinances and the commands of God that the Israelites were supposed to follow that were used to set them apart from the rest of the pagan nations that were surrounding them. But what does Deuteronomy 22.5 say? Once again, taking a literal translation, it says, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on women's clothing. They take a, a piece of scripture that actually goes against what they are claiming, and they say, well, yeah, that's in there, but it just doesn't apply anymore. That was back then, right? I also want to refute the point that this is not saying that women are not allowed to wear pants. That's what a lot of legalists do is they go back to this passage and they say, see, this is what it's talking about. But the English language at times fails us, and so we need to actually take a little bit deeper look at what this means. And so when it actually is talking about clothing, it's saying that, yes, the outer garments that you put on, but also the ornaments that go along with that garment. What God is saying here is he's not saying that women can't wear pants. But instead, what he is saying is, is that women should not dress like men to look like men. And men should not dress like women to look like women. That's the point that he's bringing here. This is the point that God has called, not just sin, but notice the word there in Deuteronomy 22.5. God calls this an abomination. That means that this goes completely against the order of what God has established through his creation and that this also is something that he hates and despises. That's some pretty long, strong language right there. Now on to the second half where they say that the Torah no longer applies. I'm going to take the easy way out. That's another study. No, I'm just kidding. It is important, and I'm not going to dig too far down in since we uh, are starting to run out a little bit at a time. But we cannot just take the Old Testament and throw it away. We need it. Because the Old Testament is what interprets the New Testament. But I love what John MacArthur put in his commentary about the book of Deuteronomy where he says, Deuteronomy reveals that the Lord is the only God and that he is jealous, faithful, loving, merciful, and yet angered by sin. Tell you what, we look at those characteristics of God and Deuteronomy speaks to such things 
it is important that we don't just throw out the book of Deuteronomy. Amen? You see, but if this answer isn't good enough for you, I have another answer for you. You see, in 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, God says, or do you not, or Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither uh, fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There it is in plain English. Not in the Torah, but in the New Testament. Paul actually says right there in the middle that effeminate men will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, but we have to make sure that we know what this word effeminate means. And I was actually studying through all of this, and it's got me to thinking, well, does it mean that I am effeminate because I like to decorate birthday cakes? That's one of the skills that I have had since I was little, right? And I still do it to this day, but does that mean that I am effeminate and therefore will not inherit the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. You see, I do not do this for the sake of trying to make myself appear more feminine or less masculine. A feminine is characterized here in the New Testament the same way that it is in Deuteronomy 22.5. This word is talking about men that are trying to act like women. So, there you go. A New Testament example, or a New Testament refute against uh, something that they say is no longer valid back in uh, Deuteronomy 22.5. Point four. Because Paul says that there is neither male nor female... Fixed genders no longer exist. Everybody turn your Bibles to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 24. Because in the book of Galatians, and I, I forgot to ask Stacy, but I, I found this really ironic. And I put this in my notes because I think it's funny. But in Galatians, uh, so they use Galatians chapter 3, or use the book of Galatians to try to make this point. But in context, the book of Galatians is a book that is written to the church in Galatia that was talking about the law of God out of context. So you see what they do is, is they actually take a verse out of Galatians, yank it out of context, which is the exact same thing that Paul is refuting within the book of Galatians. You see, in Galatians 3, this is what Paul is talking about, where they were actually treating each other poorly. They were suing each other. They were accusing each other of all kinds of things. And then Paul launches off and explains to them their, what the law is and their adherence to it and what, we, what the law is to us, right? And he refutes all of this legalism that was going around. And that's where we pick it up in Galatians 3.24 where it says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for we are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So they're right, absolutely. Paul says that there is neither male nor female, but Paul isn't talking about sex, he is talking about salvation. He's saying that in Christ, because we are all identified in Christ, that it doesn't matter if you are male or female, that you can be saved through his blood. That is the point of what Paul is getting across here, and yet they yank this verse out of the middle of it. And I find it interesting that they don't even talk about the Jews or the Greeks here, right? Because just the male and female is what supports what they are uh, trying to say. Paul doesn't say that a Jew becomes a Greek or a Greek becomes a Jew. So why would he say that a male can become a female or a female can become a male? In fact, we can see this refuted in uh, Romans 11 where we can actually see the Jews and Greeks are actually grafted into the same uh, olive tree, right? It doesn't mean that they're replaced, but it, re it means that they are a part of the same family. They are now one in Christ. Which brings us to our fifth point. The Bible describes a non-binary gender called eunuchs. And I just laugh at this as well, Brian, because just the foolishness of this. Everybody turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to be starting with verse 25. And this is an event that many of us, of course, know as well. Where this Ethiopian is actually riding in a chariot and he's reading scripture. And then Philip actually comes up and uh, helps him to think rightly about scripture. And ultimately, Philip leads this man to salvation. But this is where we pick it up, and I want to pick it up in Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 25, or excuse me, verse 36, where it says, As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, uh, it's supposed to say you may. I don't know. Okay, it does say you may up there. All right, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But did you see what uh, was said there? It says in that very last passage, and he answered and said. You see, I took this and I took a literal interpretation of Scripture and I went to every single verse that mentioned a eunuch and guess what I found? Every single one referenced that eunuch to be a man. It didn't matter if their outward appearance was changed. It didn't matter if they were set apart spiritually for that purpose. They were still exactly who God created them to be. They were still a man. You see, nothing that we can do can usurp the authority of God over his creation. But then what do we do? 
These five points we can refute with Scripture, and we should continue to refute things with Scripture, for it is the perfect and holy Word of God. But this is if we're dealing with someone in the church, not someone who is caught in the midst of this sin, who is choosing to sin or choosing to support this sin. So what do we do? What do we do with the world when confronting this topic? First off, we show them the love of God. Now, I know many of you are sitting there thinking, well, what does he mean by that? And you're right to think so. Because some, showing somebody the love of God, I, when I was listening to different sermons and everything, preachers were all over the board on that. In fact, about half of them said that showing them the love of God is, means that when we are ministering to them, we need to go ahead and call them by their preferred gender so that way we can make sure that they feel comfortable and they'll be more accepting and inviting of the gospel. That's heresy. That is not the love of God. In fact, a pre, uh, our pastor is, uh, was a young kid and we were growing up, used to have a saying to things like this. You are loving them, but you're loving them all the way to hell. That's the reality of this point. We are to show them the love of God, but the most loving thing that we can do for them is exactly what we see within Acts chapter 8. We need to tell them that what they are doing is they are sinning, that they are a sinner, and they are in need of a Savior. That is what love is. How do we know that? Because of this verse that's right back behind me. Because God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of God, in that while we were yet sinners, God still provided a way of salvation. But that does not mean that what God did, or even what Jesus did, is to come to a sinner and say, it's okay that you're sinning, you can still be saved. There are two things that are required of salvation. You are called to repent and to believe. You cannot have one without the other. True salvation is only, only comes through knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is what they need to hear. We don't use a two-by-four or hit them over the head with the Bible and say, get it through your head. But we also don't coddle them in their sin. We call it out. And we point to the only one that can take that sin away from them, that can set them free from that sin. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and the clarity that it has given us. God, the clarity that you have called sin, sin. Father, that you have set our sex since the, before you even formed us. 
God, that you have established how your creation would function and you have ultimate authority over it. And God, we love you and trust you and praise you for that. God, ultimately, we pray that we would be able to stand boldly with the belt of truth when enemies surround us, knowing that, God, you have set a hedge before us and behind us and that, God, your truth will not fail. Father, help us to preach and help us to tell the world that what profits a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? This is the love of God that, he has put, that you have put on display. God, help us to convey your truth. God, we love you. And we pray this in your most heavenly name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.